Hello everyone and I'd like to welcome you to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal. Today I'm delighted to be speaking with three special guests. Emma Turner, Director of Barclays Private Bank Philanthropy Service. Kath Dovey, Co-Founder of the Beacon Collaborative. And Adam Bryan, Director of Partnerships and Innovation at the Institute of Fundraising. In today's conversation, we discuss two recent reports that were published. The Giving Experience, Overcoming the Barriers to Giving Among the Wealthy in the UK from the Beacon Collaborative and the Institute of Fundraising, which considers how fundraising organisations engage with wealthy donors as partners in social change, followed by Barriers to Giving, Research into the Evolving World of Philanthropy by Barclays Private Bank in partnership with the Beacon Collaborative and the Institute of Fundraising which highlights a number of key obstacles that wealthy individuals face in their giving experience. We touch on what are the key barriers that high net worth individuals face in their giving experience, what can charities and fundraisers do to remove these barriers, how will the COVID-19 crisis impact on high net worth individuals and their giving, and what does the future of philanthropy look like? I would recommend everyone listening to check out these reports as they provide a unique and detailed insight into the changing world of philanthropy. Prior to this conversation with Emma, Kath and Adam, I was particularly interested to hear how the collaboration of these three well-known and respected organisations came about and how their research and findings will, in many ways, shape and guide the sector's response to working with high net worth individuals. So first, I'd like to give each of you the opportunity to introduce yourselves. So what would be really good for our listeners, if you say your role, the organisation you're from, and a brief overview of your key responsibilities and experience. Emma, would you like to go first? Sure. Hello, my name is Emma Turner, and I currently run the Barclays Private Bank Client Philanthropy Service. Prior to this, I ran Goldman Sachs' corporate giving for 11 years, and prior to that, I was a fundraiser for a charity raising money for drug addicts and alcoholics. And prior to that, well, that was, that was such a long time ago, I'm not going to go into it. Um, the philanthropy service is for our private clients and their families, and it's an advisory service where we basically help clients achieve their giving aspirations through conversations, events, and literature. Thank you, Emma. Um, Adam, would you like to go next? Hi, I'm Adam Bryan, Director of Partnerships and Innovation at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. I'm responsible for managing the relationship with our organisational members, so the charities that we have within our community, corporate partnerships, and also helping the sector innovate and sharing ideas and best practice. I've background in the media industry and working within the TV sector. I've also worked independently for a number of agencies and also small charities. Thank you, Adam. Um, Catherine, would you like to go next? Sure. I'm Kath Dovey. I'm one of the principals of the Beacon Collaborative, which is a collective impact movement in the UK aimed at increasing giving among high net worth donors. We do that with the active support of uh, the key 
philanthropy sector organisations in the UK, including uh, the Chartered Institute for Fundraising. Um, and prior to, to my role at Beacon, I ran a global management consulting firm for 20 years, focusing on wealth and wealth management. Brilliant. Thank you, Catherine. So today I'd like to discuss two reports that um, all three organisations who are on this podcast were involved with. The first, um, with the Beacon Collaborative and the Institute of Fundraising, a report entitled The Giving Experience, Overcoming the Barriers to Giving Among the Wealthy in the UK. And secondly, a report by Barclays Private Bank in partnership with the Beacon Collaborative and the Institute of Fundraising, entitled Barriers to Giving, Research into the evolving world of philanthropy. So before we discuss and go into the reports in detail, I wondered whether you could share a little bit of insight into how this partnership first came about. Office commissioned um, a piece of research in 2019 called The Barriers to Giving. And we realized when we looked at the results that whilst uh, it was going to be quite easy for me to manage the donor side of the issues that came out in the research, there were some that were more addressed to fundraisers and we didn't want to leave fundraisers sort of hanging in the lurch. And at that point, we knew Beacon and we knew Kath very well. And we knew that Kath was doing her own piece of research called The Barriers to Giving and that her research was going to sit on the Institute of Fundraising's website. And so we all got together and put our heads together and came up with an idea that if we collaborated, we could run uh, two large sessions, if you like, for the IOF's organisational members where we could help fundraisers understand what these barriers were, how they might uh, mitigate some of them, and bring in some experts in the field to talk about um, what they saw as barriers to help everybody basically understand this problem better and to help Beacon achieve their goals of increasing giving in this country by two billion a year by 2025. You mentioned both of the reports. Catherine Adam, can you please outline the main tenets of the Giving Experience Report first, and then we can touch on um, the main findings of the Barclays Report in partnership with Beacon and the IOF? Sure. So, um, as Emma said, um, Barclays had already undertaken some research looking at barriers, and really what we wanted to do was to take the next step, which was to try and figure out how we could use research to overcome those barriers. Um, so. I think where we jumped off from, from the Barclays report, it was very clear from their global piece of research that there were some common themes. And that strongly indicates that there's something in uh, the psychology of wealth that is potentially holding people back from giving more. So by using um, segmentation techniques in the um, giving experience report, we really look at what are, what are the concerns, what are the fears, what are the hopes, what are the dreams of different groups within the high net worth population because it's really by understanding those underpinning motivations that you can start to unpick how best to support them on a, on a donor journey. Thanks Kath and Adam would you like to um, input in terms of what was the IOF's role within that and how you supported um, Beacon to do this research? As a membership body for the sector we're in constant dialogue with charities and understand many of the challenges that they face. So the overall fundraising landscape is difficult. Lots of charities have relied on individual giving 
income streams, so high volume, low yield, and perhaps haven't made as good an opportunity as there is to work with high net worth individuals. So we very much welcome the opportunity to be involved with Beacon and Barclays and share the insight to our members to help them become aware and then hopefully overcome the barriers that are there to working with high net worth individuals. Thanks, Adam. And before we get into those individual barriers, which we'll touch on a little bit later, Emma, would you mind just outlining the report that Barclays uh, released in 2019? Yeah, so we did, uh, we commissioned Savanta to carry this out, and there were two streams to it. So we did 400 interviews with high net worth uh, across the UK, but also uh, a smaller cohort in France, Germany, Italy, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Hong Kong, Singapore, and India. And the high net worth was defined by having over £5 million worth of investable assets. And then they also looked at some ultra high net worth. And those were people with over £30 million of investable assets. So that was your kind of cohort of people. Mm. And then we also, uh, they also uh, interviewed um, industry experts, uh, people like Kath, I think Adam participated, some philanthropists, other people working in the field. Um, to ask them similar questions. We, we talked to senior fundraisers. There was a, quite a large group of people that were interviewed to get their thoughts and their feedback on it. And then we came out with what the barriers are, which I can talk about uh, when, you, when you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we um, go on to that topic now? So what are the key barriers to giving? Because when I was reading through both reports, um, there were some similar um, threads that run through both of the reports, including a lack of faith between high net worth individuals and charities. Can you just elaborate a little bit more on that, Emma? So I think what I'll start by saying is I think it's really important, and I've, and I've been a fundraiser, so I can talk from both sides of the street, is that I think a lot of charities look at wealthy people and they don't go beyond what they're seeing in terms of what that individual might be able to give to them. And so what we discovered is that a lot of wealthy people have a number of financial obligations. And what that means is there are often many people on the family payroll. It's not just the individual. There could be their own immediate family. They could be helping families, but both sort of outwards and downwards, um, as well as having a number of other things. And often uh, individuals giving is more to do with their income than it is to do with their assets. And often fundraisers look at individuals and they think they know what their assets are, but actually what they end up being able to give is far less than possibly what people think. Also, high net worth people are used to having control and they like to have control over their money. So they like to know where they're putting it and what it's going to achieve in a very similar way to what they might be expecting when they're choosing stocks in a portfolio. They don't have a lot of faith in charities. Now, that's not surprising when we cast our mind back to the last few years with Kids Company. There was a long debate about CEO pay. Then you had, you know, the pensioner who kind of allegedly, you know, died being hounded by 90 charities. Um, and then a number of other things that, that have come up over the last couple of years. And so I think people read the newspapers. And I think the more they see these stories, unfortunately, they take them as, you know, given. And then that decreases um, their faith. A lot of them, particularly clients that I work with, are coming to their giving for the first time. So they have no experience or understanding of the sector. So they don't know how many charities they are. They don't know uh, what a typical income stream might be. 
And I spend a lot of time educating clients into what it's like to be a 21st century charity, even before they give away their first um, grant. They often think, well, okay, so I could do something, but what about Bill Gates? Bill Gates gets, gets, Gates gets cited to me a lot. You know, but I, I'm not Bill Gates. Well, nobody's Bill Gates, and Bill Gates is operating in a dimension of his own, so I kind of try and bring them back down to their own level. Then they often, they, they might say, well, look, you know, I pay a very high rate of tax. And so isn't it the government's job to provide this service? Why should this be run by a charity? That's another long conversation to have. And then they sometimes say, well, I'm giving X at the moment. Is it going to make that much difference if I increase it by a certain amount? Is it really going to make that much difference to the problem? So there's all sorts of things going on in the mix here, which a lot of fundraisers, and it's not their fault, just don't. No, because they don't know these people. They're not hanging out with them and the individuals aren't hanging out with the charities either. And so it's a question of trying to uh, make this divide between the two narrier by basically educating both of them as to who the other side is that they're talking to. And that's what we really found in our piece of research. Thanks, Emma. And uh, Adam, would you like to add something in? Yes. So I, I was just going to add that the fundraisers should um, approach high net worth individuals as, as partners and with a relationship and a long-term relationship focused approach. And the more understanding and respect that there is between both parties, the, the better. And the, the focus should be on shared goals and values and how to achieve long and lasting impact. And a, a key thing about giving, which is you know, part of the Institute's mission, is to remember to make people feel good, great, or even ecstatic about giving, because it's a, a very unique experience. Absolutely. And when I was reading the two reports, two themes that came out really strongly for me was about trust and about meaningful relationships. And I think those two points are at the heart of what a fundraiser should bear in mind when trying to build, engage and steward a major donor. Also, um, Catherine, in the, in the report that you worked on in particular, you mentioned something about prospectors, pioneers and settlers, which I found um, quite interesting. Can you please elaborate on that? Yeah, so one of the things we did in our research was to um, put in uh, at the research uh, level some questions that allow us to do behavioural segmentation. And the behavioural model that we're using is based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so it's a pretty well-established sort of psychological approach. Um, what it identifies is you have three uh, large behavioural groups and among the high net worth population in the UK, about half of the profile we would call prospectors. These are the people who tend to draw their motivations from the middle of Maslow's hierarchy, which is around the need for esteem, the need, the need for self-worth. Uh, and quite interestingly, um, you know, people who are motivated by those, those factors tend to focus on financial success. So people who are focused on money make money. And linked to that, they also want to give it away because they want to be seen as being active in their communities. And they see this as a responsibility that comes with wealth. And that's a very big group. And I think it's a group fundraisers know very well um, because they do 
Uh, these people do have a tendency towards wanting to be quite active and involved and engaged, possibly a little bit controlling if you want to look at some of the negative characteristics. Um, and I think fundraisers do work very well with them. You know, they do know that these are high touch donors. When they spot them, you know, they look after those relationships well. I think the other two groups that we found are perhaps less well served by the fundraising community today in the UK. I'm sure individually, you know, fundraisers will work well with them, but I think there's perhaps less of a collective understanding. The, the second largest group are called pioneers. So these are people whose motivations are drawn from the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They are people who are in his parlance self-actualizing. They tend to focus on strategic uh, initiatives they tend to have kind of a big picture view of the world they're very motivated by evidence so they want to know from the organizations that they support you know they want to know what they're doing how they're doing it what impact it's having they tend to focus much more on the impact side on the reporting side fundraisers have much less of an influence on these people so it's very much about how you project yourself publicly so these donors can find you rather than you finding them and the third group, which is a smaller group in the high net worth population, are called settlers. Um, they are uh, motivated um, by some of the factors at the bottom of the pyramid, so safety, security, belonging. And they tend to you know, want peace of mind. Um, they tend to be more likely to be legacy givers, for example. So once they have you know, used their wealth for their life, they're comfortable to then hand some of that over to charity as a legacy gift. Um, in the current circumstances, I would expect that they are focused on the national response and you know, how do we secure our, our, our national um, response to the, to the COVID crisis, for example. But they're a much smaller group, 15% um, overall. And the reason for using that segmentation approach is I think that it, it sort of puts a different lens on this question of trust that you raise, because trust is really complex. It's not built over you know, one interaction, it's built over many interactions. It's, it's formulated about how the whole organisation interacts with the donor. And the fundraiser needs to be supported by their whole organisation to make sure that they have the right intervention at the right time with the right kind of donor, so that that relationship of trust builds up over time. So that was the reason for using that behavioural model really to, to just get a different perspective on how you build trust. Thank you, Kath. I think that's really important from a fundraiser's perspective, because as soon as you break it down into segmentation like that, it allows fundraisers like myself to understand what major donors, for example, they're working with and how to best engage with them and how to effectively work with them um, in a partnership. And that's something that came through in the reports for me as well. In, in many ways, the, the major donor and the charity working in partnership with one another to achieve long-lasting change for the society. Um, and of course, each major donor has different reasons for giving. And that's where I want to turn to now, because in the Barclays report, in partnership with Beacon and the IOF, uh, Emma, it's mentioned that there are donation triggers. And I just wanted to whether you could add a little bit more on that. So Alice, I'm just going to add uh, a couple of things into what we were talking about, two things that I meant to mention. One is it's always worth remembering that most high net worth people are used to high levels of service at this point in their life. Uh, that's what they get for being wealthy. They are, you know, if they're, they're their bank or their, their investment manager or whoever it is where they are being looked after, they expect high levels of service. And the other thing to remember is that 
these are people that are quite happy not to rush into decisions. So I often quote this, and I said it when he spoke for me, but Lloyd Dorfman did not wake up one morning and decide to give the National Theatre 10 million pounds that day. That was a 10 year relationship before something came along that he knew them, he trusted them, he liked them, he'd given them smaller amounts, he'd set up the 10 pound ticket through TravelX, and when the time came, he felt very comfortable making that donation. And I think the problem, and you could say it's exactly the same in banking and all sorts of industries, everyone has targets. But for someone to give a large donation, it's going to take them a while. And it may not even come in on your watch. It may be that it takes two or three years sometimes. And it may be that that particular fundraiser has then left the organization, the new person takes over the potential client, and the money comes in three months later. But I think that's often a bit of a dilemma that fundraisers are understandably in a hurry because they want to make sure that they're maximizing the time spent with people. But I think it's really important to steward, and as Adam said, to build those relationships. And you have to let the donor work at their own speed. Um, the thing that I, in my experience of doing this for you know, 12 years and having met nearly 2,000 clients, um, the trigger for doing this is, there are a number of reasons. Often people are doing it because of faith. Often people are doing it because they've been brought up that their family has actually been givers and they grew up seeing it happen and they liked what they saw. And so they took, that was the legacy that was handed to them by their parents. And a large trigger is often some kind of personal event that something happened. And it won't necessarily be the day you get your first bonus. It could be unlikely it'll be something that someone in the family is ill and a charity has stepped in and they've helped with that condition it might be they like the idea of doing some research because someone in the family has died of an illness and there isn't much research on, on, on why um, it could be that your child is rushed to Great Ormond Street in the middle of the night and suddenly you realize that Great Ormond Street needs your help but but for, but for me the, the most common one is some kind of personal trigger that makes you realize that actually here is something which is a big problem and you, have the, and you have it within your capability to try and help solve whatever it is that's trying to be solved or to support the organization and the work that they're doing. Thank you, Emma. That's a really succinct and articulate way of fundraisers needing to understand that there are several donation triggers for um, high net worth individuals and the common ones which you've already mentioned. Adam, I want to turn to you in terms of the IOF's perspective now. How can the IOF or in what ways is the IOF aiming to support organisations to overcome some of these barriers? So it's important for for us to continue to partner with organizations like Beacon and Barclays and bring experts in the in their particular fields together. So Emma to share insight uh, of her clients, Cass to to help provide a, a an overview of everyone within the philanthropic space. Um, the Institute has a, a long-running training program, so uh, an excellent major donor-focused fundraising course. Um, and I, I mentioned it earlier, we became a, a chartered body 
very recently. So that's recognition for fundraisers now as a, a proper profession, like doctors or accountants. But one thing that we, when we were set up over 30 years ago, was to bring people together to share ideas and best practice. And that's something that we will continue to do. So I think our role is really as a facilitator, bringing the best people that we know together and sharing their insight and expertise. So we're very keen to continue to work on reports such as the, the one with Beacon and Barclays and to just do more of that. And we've got some events, well, we've got an, an event planned um, with Kath and Emma in October that we would invite all of our members to and another one in April next year. Thank you, Adam. And I also now want to turn into some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings that high net worth individuals have with charities and vice versa. Emma, would you like to start on that? So I think it goes back to some of the things that we found in the report that there is this lack of faith, there is a lack of understanding. And if you think about it logically, here is someone who has got to the point in their life where they've got a bit of space, maybe they've got the money, and I actually had a client, I had two clients say very interesting things. And one said, this has been on my to-do list for about five years. Now it's on my doing list because you've helped me get it off the list. But because you've answered my questions, you've told me what I need to know. And, it, and, and it's very, very basic education. I mean, I haven't had a client yet that's been able to tell me how many charities there are in the UK. Do they, and most, a lot of them don't understand about gift aid, for example. Um, they think the charities spend far too much on running costs. That's always an interesting conversation to have with somebody. They often don't know between restricted and unrestricted gifts because no one's mentioned it to them. And I go back to the fact that, unfortunately, the sector has not had great publicity in the last few years. And so that you know, makes them a bit nervous. Like, well, who are these people? Are they going to misuse my data? Um, you know, am I giving my money to something which is something going to end up in the newspapers? You're having a scandal. Um, all the scandals recently with, you know, certain charities that I won't name about, you know, misbehavior in far-flung countries. Well, these are all organizations that people know about and they are, and they're smart and they go, you know, I'm not sure about this. So I think from that side, that's, those are quite easy conversations for me to have to allay fears and concerns and to kind of put them straight, if you like. I had another client that was fascinating had a lot of money in a foundation, and he said, I thought, and, and he came to the day, he, thought, he said, I thought it would take care of itself, Emma. I just thought I would know what charity to give my money to. And he suddenly realized he was looking at the charity sector, and he didn't have an idea as to where the four corners and the sky was, like a jigsaw puzzle. And I think from the fundraiser's perspective, it's, um, it's just a question, you know, just remember that these are human beings, and, and if they're sitting in front of you, they're interested in what you're doing. But the comments that I hear from clients about, you know, fundraisers are um, they never stopped talking. They never drew breath. That's quite a common one. So they didn't let me kind of ask questions. And I know that's out of nerves probably a lot of the time. And also they never told me how much they wanted. And I say to fundraisers, you know, that's your title, fundraiser. And I know that we're English and we don't talk about money. But you really, these people talk money. So they really need to understand what, what's the problem you're trying to fix. How are you going to fix it? And how can their financial intervention help that problem get fixed? It's not much more complicated than that. But I think you know, that's why having these, these big sessions that we're going to run um, in October and hopefully April will just help people 
uh, be more comfortable having these conversations. That's really important about when to make the ask. The role of a fundraiser is to pick the right moment, engage with the high net worth individuals and make sure they're comfortable. So a subject on everybody's mind at the moment is, of course, COVID-19 and the sector's response to it. We've seen in the last few weeks, funders coming together, high net worth individuals coming together to ensure that the response to COVID-19 is robust. And I just wanted to get your views on where you see and how you see that affecting um, giving by high net worth individuals in the future. Um, Kath, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, of course. Uh, yes, I mean, obviously, uh, at the scale of what we're facing in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on the charity sector is really coming to light. It's really evident that it has the potential to be devastating. And I know there's an enormous effort going in from organisations like the Institute of Fundraising, um, the Charity State Foundation and many of our partners, as well as conversations happening in government to see what can be achieved. I think high net worth donors are are aware of these challenges. I think you have to remember sort of picking up on some of the comments Emma's made that, you know, wealthy people have complex lives. They have their own businesses. They have their own staff to furlough. Um, they have uh, many other concerns. But that's not going to uh, stop them giving, providing they're engaged effectively. Um, and I think we're really getting to the point now where we're seeing wealthy people saying, OK, so what can I do? How can I help? And I think over the next few weeks, we need to have some very clear answers to that question. Now, how can we engage philanthropists in the effort? Uh, how can their money be used most wisely so that they have a good experience and they will forge those longer term partnerships? And, um, and I think, you know, as we start to answer these questions, I think we can expect to see wealthy people engaging. I think it's fair to say, just coming back to some of the, the comments earlier around segmentation, you know, you're going to see a wide range of behaviour. Um, those prospective clients we talked about, they have very high levels of financial anxiety. You know, it is likely that they will delay until they have the right conversation with an organisation, or they will follow the herd. Um, so we're likely to see them giving perhaps some of the bigger appeals. Or if they have some experience of giving, they may focus on a few organisations. They may try and help uh, lead the charge of others. Um, but they will respond. They just need intervention at the right time. Pioneer to want uh, strategic responses. So organisations that accept the landscape for them, help them to understand the bigger picture, how COVID is impacting a whole sector, a whole area, a whole theme. Um, and help them to be part of that of that response. And I think with the settlers I mentioned before, I, I think we're likely to see them, first of all, secure their family, then think how they can secure their community, and also how they can con contribute to that wider national effort. So I think key message is we will see donors step forward. We will see wealthy people wanting to contribute. Our responsibility is to make sure that money is used wisely so that they'll be there for the long term and not just a, a small donation now and then never again. Adam, would you like to add anything on the COVID-19 response um, from the IOF's perspective? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're seeing many of our members really step up and innovate during the crisis. So moving quickly which is something the charity sector has often been accused of not doing so um 
to help support some of the most vulnerable members of our society. So with food banks, supporting the, the elderly, the lonely, um, refuge, for example. One of the awful effects of the lockdown has been the rise of domestic abuse. So we're really seeing step, charities step up to support um, communities. And, and I would describe them as, as, in a way, local communities. And they're doing that with the support of their donors and major donors. An example of major giving, so Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, has made a billion pounds available for COVID relief. So this on a, a global scale. So COVID-19, obviously, is a, a global crisis. So it's if, if you had a billion, where, where would you fund that to, to have the most impact to provide a cure or a vaccine? So, so it's difficult to know where, where you would invest that. And I know that Emma earlier mentioned about keeping it simple. What's the problem? How do we solve it? And how much support do we need to do that? So if we look at other issues like cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, these are also global issues. So I think one of the changes that I hope we see is that a greater collaboration on a, a global scale with organisations, governments, businesses, philanthropists working together to try and help solve some of the most pressing issues and problems that we face. Um, Emma, would you like to add anything in terms of COVID-19 response? Yeah, I would actually. Um, so I think, you know, so the people fall into different categories when it comes to, well, first of all, I mean, you know, someone said that the word unprecedented has been used so many times, but we've never, this is very different to the recession in 2008 when I actually first started my role here. So I think for people who are already giving in a meaningful way, and one has to remember that their foundation portfolios will be down as well as their own portfolio. So they're looking at possibly less money to give away because they might not be in a situation where they can top it up. So what do they do with that? Do they give some to the emergency appeal or do they actually wait a little while and then they support the organisations that they've already been supporting and hopefully stay with them a bit longer? I think one of the issues we've got, and we on a call yesterday talking about this, is that the the people that haven't given, that the, the, a lot of people have no idea what's going on in the charity sector and the financial crisis that it's facing. They've seen the government give £750 million. What they haven't seen is that there's a £4 billion expected deficit in the first three months. That's a really big gap. And philanthropy, with all of its best intentions and its deepest digging, will not be able to fill that hole. So it's about where you deploy the money. And then you've got people who have never given and will be triggered to give because it's a crisis, a bit like a tsunami. Well, first of all, where did they give it? And then secondly, those are the people that I would hope that one could capture to then become givers on a more permanent basis. Because often that goes back to your point about what triggers people to give or something like this. I think it is, a, is a, sadly a terrific trigger for people. But it is quite complicated because it's not just about the now. It's about three months' time, six months' time, uh, nine months' time, someone said, yes, we could see 40% of charities shut in this country. And I don't think a lot of people out in the general public who are wealthy and who could be giving have any idea about that right now. So it's all of us are trying to kind of you know, raise that message 
um, that everybody, you know, it would be great if everybody could do something because we want charities help us in ways that we often forget and we need to try and do our bit and basically help them right now. Thank you, Emma. And I think you all three have captured our COVID-19 response needs to be a whole society effort, philanthropy, government, civil society. We all need to come together in order to respond to an unprecedented and challenging time that the likes of which we have never seen before. One of the questions that I am tasked with as a fundraiser myself is how do you engage high net worth individuals at a time like this or similar to this? Where organisations can suffer is if they don't have the substantial portfolio of high net worth individuals to engage with. To your point, you, you have to stick with engaging and talking to the ones that you already have, the ones that know you, uh, how well they know you will depend on the conversation you have with them. But I don't think you can start plucking high net worth people out of trees and expecting them to support you in the middle of a crisis because many of them have got their own crisis going on. Mm. You know, they're either losing businesses, uh, they've got a whole new family situation that they're trying to deal with. Um, they might be working for a firm, like a friend of mine's working in a bank, he's very worried he's going to be laid off. So these people do have their own problems. And it's the first time that I can remember that this is a problem that no matter how much, that the money can't be thrown at it to solve it. And if you're a high net worth person, that's probably quite a, that, that, that's a very new experience. And, and it affects everybody, this particular crisis. is No matter how much money you've got, you can't, you can't fix it today. You can't make it go away. I think we will see new donors. I don't think it'll be easy to prospect them, as Emma says. But I think um, this will be a trigger for high net worth to give. And it's very likely that they will find appeals and they will find organisations that they want to give to. Um, I think I would suggest that you need to uh, accept that they're going to have to give at a level that they're comfortable with. Picking up on Emma's point that, you know, they have their own crises going on in their lives, so portfolios are down, their incomes may be down, they've got the same job insecurities as other people. Um, you know, uh, let them start at a level that they're comfortable with and focus on building those relationships so that they can be with you in six months' time and 12 months' time and two years' time because this crisis is going to have a long tail and particularly for the charitable sector. So I think it's really important that if a wealthy donor finds you Firstly, recognise that they're wealthy and all the points that we've raised before are absolutely critically important. Uh, approach them as an individual, recognise that they want to be a partner, provide them with the, the accountability that they're looking for, but also encourage them to give at levels that they're comfortable with and focus on building that relationship for the medium and long term. Because I think that that is a way that we can help high net worth donors to do their part and to get involved. Thanks, Kath. Adam, would you like to add anything? Well, I think um, Emma and Kath covered it all very well. It's, it, it goes back to that having a long-term relationship-focused approach that's built on trust and, and shared values. So, and, and just going back to that point of giving the donor a good experience the whole way through the journey. I now want to focus on the future. Um, we know that the landscape and the demographic of what it means to be a high net worth individual is changing. 
And what I wanted to ask is, both reports focus on more younger wealthy donors being able to give and wanting to give. How can charities respond to that and engage those donors of the future? Yes, I I am quite worried about that demographic um, because um, I think the COVID crisis will have a disproportionate impact on their wealth creation capabilities. And I think that the fear factor in that younger group is likely to be greater than in other groups. Um, Many of them will be starting out in business. They will perhaps have young families. They have 20 years of um, providing for those families ahead of them. It's very likely that their financial insecurity will be much higher than it is in the older groups. And so I think, um, you know, certainly over the next two to three years, fundraising organisations really do need to understand and connect with this group. We know that they have a very high interest in social impact. We know that they want relationships with um, with organisations that are making a difference in communities and in the wider world. But I think it's more important than ever with those particular young donors to, to make sure that you're walking alongside them and giving them the confidence that... Um, you know, they can give at those levels that they're comfortable with and they can sustain that over the long term. Um, So yes, I think young people are undoubtedly um, going to be really important uh, major donors in the future. And the process of engagement needs to start now to make sure that they remain engaged through these next few years. Adam, Emma, would you like to add anything about the future of giving? I I would agree with Kath there. We need to be creative, we need to be smart, we need to collaborate, to be ambitious, and to, to really focus on impact and to, to bring our supporters and donors with us and help, help make them feel part of what we want to be a, a success. We, we want to achieve great things and we can only do that with the, the help of very generous kind supporters actually of you know of all ages so i think um we have to be very patient and very realistic and i agree with Cass. i i I think i think fundraising is if it was hard before it's going to be even harder now because as Cass said you know this this young generation are facing uh much higher levels of unemployment much more insecurity, much harder to find jobs, and therefore you know, giving may not be as high up the list as it was. But I think um, walking alongside them and being very patient. One of the greatest things I apparently I ever said to a client was when she was struggling with being a mother and getting involved in philanthropy. And I said, why don't you go away and be a mother for a couple of years? Because philanthropy, sadly, is always going to be here. And she said, the fact that I gave her permission to do one and not the other was one of the greatest gifts that I could have given her. And it's not so dissimilar for this. I think it's acknowledging that whatever someone's priorities are, they are their priorities. And that I love what Cass said about you have to acknowledge that people need to give at the level that they are able to give. And it's going to be less for a while. It just is. And that's a fact. But I think if you're patient and you stick with people, when times get better, which they will, you will be the first charity that they will come back to and increase their giving if you've allowed them that breathing space during the next couple of years. And if you say to someone, look, I understand for five years you've given me £10,000. If it needs to be £5,000 for a couple of years, that will help us 
and we'd still be incredibly grateful. And I think if I was that donor, because I didn't know how to tell the charity that actually my donation can't be as big, I would be so relieved. And I would think the minute I can go back up to 10, you're going to get my money. That would be, that would be my kind of instincts. I think what Emma's saying there, I would agree with it. It's, it's, a, it's again, it's a longer term relationship approach. So really understanding the people that you're talking to and the situation that they're in. And, and if you can show them that you are there for them, they, w- they will come back to you. So I, I would agree with what Emma is saying there, yes. The opportunity here is to recognise that we have a trigger in the current environment for more people to give, more wealthy people who will want to give something. And it's actually about engaging that wider pool um, rather than just focusing on the same key relationships and, and you know, the focus purely being on deepening them. Um, maintain those relationships, nurture those relationships and give them permission to give at the levels they're comfortable with. But also, you know, as new donors come to you, um, start seeding those relationships for the long term. Because as Emma says, we may find that established donors are not giving or able to give at the same levels that they have in the past, but there is a, a likelihood that we'll see a wider spectrum of, of wealthy people stepping forward and saying, what can I do? Uh, it is going to be challenging, but I think a crisis should drive innovation. So some new thinking, some new ideas. A topic that I wanted to discuss finally was about representation across fundraising teams in our sector. For example, only last week I was speaking to um, Charity So White talking about BAME representation within fundraising, but across the sector as well. I just wondered what impact does that have on engaging with high net worth individuals and how much importance do certain high net worth individuals give to representation I think Charity said why are doing a, a fantastic job to just highlight the need for greater diversity within the, the charity sector. It, I don't think it is fully representative of society at large. And I think if we can create a more diverse workforce, there will be many benefits for the organisation, but it will also enable them to... To, to build stronger relationships with people that may be outside their, what they think of as their natural supporter base and to, 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 to work with other people and communities. So I think it's a very important initiative. I would suggest, Osman, that in the world of philanthropy, we're starting to wake up to some of these challenges. And I think in many ways, philanthropy may be following the great work that's happening in the charity sector around diversity in trying to diversify its own thinking and make sure that it has representative voices and points of view and its own decision making. Um, and I think, um, you know, as Adam says, you know, the great work that's happening in the charity sector to, to put a spotlight on this issue is now being brought into the boardrooms of charitable foundations to make sure that they also reflect that um, diversity in their own approach. Thank you, Kath. Completely agree with that. We're all passionate about our sector. We all, we all feel passionate about what we do and to create change and long-lasting change. Emma mentioned before, and we've all alluded to, the charity sector will always be needed and philanthropists will unfortunately always be needed because 
we live in an unequal society, unfortunately, but that's the way things are, and we're here to make the world a better place. I would like to thank Emma, Kath and Adam for giving up their time to share with us their experience and expertise. A number of vital points were raised in our conversation, in particular that trust, a key component to a fundraiser's relationship with a high net worth individual, is built over time and multiple interactions with shared goals and values. High net worth individuals expect a high level of service and giving experience. They expect accountability and want to be seen as partners and understood as individuals. Also, in many ways, while each relationship is unique, there is a simple formula. What is the need or issue that you are trying to solve? How does your organisation seek to resolve this? And what do you need from the high net worth individual to make this happen? Also, while COVID-19 will present us with many challenges, many of which cannot be anticipated at this stage, they do present organisations with some opportunities too. And working in a collaborative and creative way with other organisations, funders and individuals, we can meet these challenges. While much of the work we are currently doing focuses on the current COVID-19 crisis, we must not forget to plan for the future either. As a sector, we are needed now more than ever, and we at Charity Chat would like to thank the thousands of employees and volunteers within the sector that are continuing to serve their beneficiaries. Thank you very much for listening, and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksamit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now. <laughs>